Chapter Six of Hints to Pilgrims. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caro. Hints to Pilgrims by Charles Stephen Brooks. Chapter Six After Dinner Pleasantries. There is a shop below Fourteenth Street, somewhat remote from fashion that sells nothing but tricks for amateur and parlour use. It is a region of cobblers, tailors, and small grocers. Upstairs, locksmiths and buttonhole cutters look through dusty windows on the L, which, under some dim influence of the moon, tosses past the buildings here, its human tide, up and down, night and morning. The trick shop flatters itself on its signboard that it carries the largest line of its peculiar trickery on the western hemisphere, hinting modestly that Baluchistan, perhaps, or Mesopotamia, where magic might be supposed to flourish, may have an equal stock. The shop does not proclaim its greatness to the casual glance. Its enormity of fraud offers no hint to the unsuspecting curb. There must be caverns and cellars at the rear, a wealth of baffling sham unrumoured to the street, shelves sagging with agreeable deception, huge bales of sleight of hand and musty barrels of old magic. But to the street, the shop reveals no more than a small shop window, of a kind in which licorice sticks and all day suckers might feel at home. It is a window at which children might stop on their way from school and meditate their choice, fumbling in their pockets for their wealth. I have stood at this window for ten minutes together. There are cards for fortune-tellers and manuals of astrology, decks with five aces and marked backs, and trick hats and boxes with false bottoms. There are iron cigars to be offered to a friend and bleeding fingers, and a device that makes a noise like blowing the nose, only much louder. Books of magic are displayed, and conjurers' outfits, shell games and disappearing rabbits. There is a line of dribble glasses, a humorous contrivance with little holes under the brim for spilling water down the front of an unwary guest. This, it is asserted, breaks the social ice and makes a timid stranger feel at home and there are puzzle pictures, beards for villains, and comic masks, Satan himself, and other painted faces for Halloween. Some persons, of course, can perform their parlour tricks without this machinery and appliance. I know a gifted fellow who can put on the expression of an idiot. Or he wrinkles his face into the semblance of eighty years, shakes with palsy, and asks his tired wife if she will love him when he's old. Again he puts a coffee cup under the shoulder of his coat and plays the humpback. On a special occasion he mounts a table, or two kitchen chairs become his stage, and recites Richard and the winter of his discontent. He needs only a pillow to smother Desdemona. And then he opens an imaginary bottle, the popping of the cork, the fizzing, the gurgle when it pours. Sometimes he's a squealing pig caught under a fence and sometimes two steamboats signalling with their whistles in a fog. I know a young woman, of the newer sort, who appears to swallow a lighted cigarette, with smoke coming from her ears. This was once a man's trick, 
but the progress of the weaker sex has shifted it. On request, she is a nervous lady with a fear of monkeys taking five children to the circus. She is Camille on her deathbed. I know a man, too, who can give the rebel yell and stick a needle full length into his leg. The pulpy part above his knee seems to make an excellent pincushion. And then there is the old locomotive starting on a slippery grade. For beginners in entertainment. The hand-organ man and his infested monkey. A duet. The chicken that is chased around the barnyard. Hamlet with the broken palate. This is side-splitting in any company. And Moriarty on the telephone. I suppose our best vaudeville performers were once amateurs themselves around the parlour lamp. And there's Jones, too, who plays the piano. Jones, when he is asked, sits at the keyboard and fingers little runs and chords. He seems to be thinking which of a hundred pieces he will play. What will you have? he asks. And a fat man wants William Tell, and a lady with a powdered nose asks for Bubbles. But Jones ignores both and says, Here's a little thing of Schumann. It's a charming bit. On the other hand, when Brown is asked to sing, it is generally too soon after dinner. Brown, evidently, takes his food through his windpipe, and it is, so to speak, a one-way street. He can hardly permit the ascending Siegfried to squeeze past the cheese and crackers that still block the crowded passage. There is not a college dinner without the mockery of an eccentric professor. A wag will catch the pointing of his finger his favourite phrase. Is there a lawyer's dinner without its imitation of Harry Lauder? Isn't there always someone who wants to sing, It's nice to get up in the morning, and trot up and down with twinkling legs? Plumbers on their lodge nights, I am told, have their very own Charlie Chaplin. And I suppose that the soda clerks' union, the dear creatures with their gum, has its local Mary Pickford, ready with a scene from Pollyanna. What jolly dinners dentists must have, telling one another in dialect how old Mrs Finnegan had her molars out. Forceps and burrs are their unwearied jest across the years. When they are together and the doors are closed, how they must frolic with our weakness. And undertakers. Even they, I am informed, throw off their solemn countenance when they gather in convention. Their carnation and mournful smile are gone, that sober gesture that waves the chilly relations to the sitting-room. But I wonder whether their dismal shop doesn't cling always just a bit to their mirth and songs. That poor duffer in the poem who asked to be laid low wrapped in his tarpaulin jacket Surely undertakers never sing of him. They must look at him with disfavour for his cheap proposal. He should have roused for a moment at the end with a request for black broadcloth and silver handles. I once sat with an undertaker at a tragedy. He was of a lively sympathy in the earlier parts and seemed hopeful that the hero would come through alive. But in the fifth act, when the clanking army was defeated in the wings, and Brutus had fallen on his sword, then, unmistakably, his thoughts returned to the peculiar viewpoint of his profession. In fancy, he sat already in the back parlour with the grieving Mrs. Brutus, arranging for the music. To undertakers, Caesar is always dead and turned to clay. 
falstaff is just a fat old gentleman who drank too much sack a babbled of green fields and then needed professional attention perhaps at the very pitch of their meetings when the merry glasses have been three times filled they pledge one another in what they are pleased to call the embalmer's fluid this jest grows rosier with the years for these many centuries at their banquets they have sung that it was a cough that carried him off that it was a coffin now then gentlemen all together for the chorus that it was a coffin they carried him off in i dined lately with a man who could look like a weasel when this was applauded he made a face like the dude of palmer cox's brownies even susan the waitress who knows her place and takes a jest soberly broke down at the pantry door we could hear her dishes rattling in convulsions in the sink and then our host played the insect with his fingers on the tablecloth smelling a spot of careless gravy from the roast with his long thin middle finger he caught the habit that insects have of waving their forward legs i still recall an uncle who could wiggle his ears he did it every christmas and thanksgiving day it was as much a part of the regular programme as the turkey and the cranberries it was a feature of his engaging foolery to pretend that the wiggle was produced by rubbing the stomach and a circle of us youngsters sat around him rubbing our expectant stomachs waiting for the miracle a cousin brought a guitar and played the spanish fandango while we sat around the fire sleepy after dinner and there was a maiden aunt with thin blue fingers who played waltzes while we danced and she nodded and slept to the drowsy sound of her own music of my own after-dinner pleasantries i am modest i have only one trick two i can recite the fur-bearing animals of north america the bison the bear the wolf the seal and sixteen others and i can go downstairs behind the couch for the cider this last requires little skill as the books of magic say it is an easy and baffling trick with every step you crook your legs a little more until finally you are on your knees hunched together and your head has disappeared from view you reverse the business coming up with tray and glasses but these are my only tricks there is a bram's waltz that i once had hopes of but it has a hard run on the second page i can never get my thumb under in time to make connections my best voice too covers only five notes you cannot do much for the neighbours with that cramped kind of range a tailor there sat on his window ledge is one of the few tunes that fall inside my poverty he calls to his wife you may remember to bring him his old crossbow and there is a great zum zum up and down in the bass until ready before the chorus starts on a foggy morning i have quite a formidable voice for those zums but after dinner pleasantries are only good at night and then my bass is thin a sailor's life yo ho is a very good tune but it goes up to d and i can sing it only when i am reckless of circumstance or when i am taking ashes from the furnace i know a lady who sings only at her sewing machine she finds a stirring accompaniment in the whirling of the wheel others sing best in tiled bathrooms sitting in warm and soapy water their voices swell to caruso's laundresses i have noticed are in lustiest voice at their tubs where their arms keep a vigorous rhythm on the scrubbing board 
but I choose ashes. I am little short of a Valkyrie, despite my sex, when I rattle the furnace grate. With hymns I can make quite a showing in church if the bass part keeps to a couple of notes. I pound along melodiously on some convenient low note and slide up now and then by a happy instinct when the tune seems to require it. The dear little lady who sits in front of me turns what I am pleased to think is an appreciative ear, and now and then for my support she throws in a pretty treble. But I have no tolerance with a bass part that undertakes a flourish and climbs up behind the tenor. This is mere egotism and a desire to shine. Art thou there, true penny? You hear this fellow in the cellarage? That is the proper bass. Dear me, now that I recall it, we have guests. Guests tonight for dinner. Will I be asked to sing? Am I in voice? I tumalum a little up and down for experiment. The roar of the subway drowns this from my neighbours, but by holding my hand over my mouth I can hear it. Is my low F in order? No, undeniably it is not. Thin and squeaky. The zums would never do. And that fast run in Brahms, can I slip through it? Or will my thumb as usual catch and stall? Have my guests seen me go downstairs behind the couch for the cider? Have they heard the fur-bearing animals? The bison, the bear, the wolf, the seal, the beaver, the otter, the fox and raccoon? Perhaps, perhaps it will be better to stop at the trick shop and buy a dribble glass and a long black beard to amuse my guests. End of chapter 6